Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Matthew 5, Jesus speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 20. Jesus says this. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, okay, you know who you are, all right? Whoever says that shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on your way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you that you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. So this is not only the word of God, but these are the words of Jesus. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. We want a purpose to be grateful and appreciate you for your word each and every Sunday here so that we don't take for granted the opportunity and we don't overlook the, the opportunity we have right here, God, to hear from you. And so that's our heart's desire, Lord, as I'm uh, going to seek uh, and do my best to articulate what you've spoken to us. I pray that ultimately you would, uh, what you've spoken to me, I pray that you would ultimately fill me with your spirit so that you would speak to us, God. That's um, our heart's desire is, is to hear from you. So Holy Spirit, I invite you to speak, to fill me, and to use me for your glory. Uh, may this time be beneficial uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Matthew 5, as we read there, verses 20 through 26, uh, we're going to come at this passage today uh, with this concept. So here is what we're tracking with today. The title of my sermon is Relational Righteousness. Relational Righteousness. Go ahead and jot that down if you're taking notes. This is what we're talking about today. Relational righteousness. I wanted to include the context of this passage there in verse 20 to help us understand that what Jesus is unpacking here on the Sermon on the Mount in the remainder of chapter 5 and into chapter even 6 a bit is this idea, as, he, as we reread there, of exceedingly great righteousness. That's what Jesus is talking about. Remember that passage we just read. I'll actually throw it up again there, verse 20. Uh, Jesus makes this alarming, disheartening statement to those listening on when he says that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees if you have any hope of inheriting the kingdom of God. And what Jesus was doing here is really accomplishing two purposes. As he's leading, ultimately leading those listening into righteousness, he's looking to first lead them to long for a righteousness that no human could ever achieve. Here, he is pointing to the gospel. Um, There is, I don't think, any human righteousness that could exceed the righteousness of a Pharisee. 
They were the, the, the righteous of the righteous. They are in, in that culture. But there is a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of a Pharisee, and it comes as a gift from God through faith in Christ. There, there's, there's one hand here where Jesus is leading us into that kind of righteousness. But we looked at the context of this teaching to see that Jesus is also leading those listening into a deeper sense of practical righteousness. As he is seeking to form the character of his followers here in this passage, what Jesus is doing here in teaching them is helping them move beyond just a surface level, level righteousness into a righteousness at a deeper level. A righteousness that goes beyond just behavioral compliance and surface-level obedience. But Jesus is seeking to bring his followers further into the understanding of the heart of God. Why were the commandments of God given? What are they given for? And what does it truly mean as a follower of Jesus to live a deep, righteous life in my pursuit of him? So that's where Jesus is going, and in fact, the way that he's going to lead us in this passage, at the end of chapter 5 specifically, the rest of this chapter, is through, through leading us into greater righteousness with this frame of teaching, where uh, there's six lessons, okay? And in each lesson, it, Jesus begins by saying this statement, and we saw it here even in verse 21 and 22. He'll use this phrase, you have heard it said by those of old, in other words, the words of, of the Torah throughout history, and he's speaking here also to the modern teaching of what it said. You have heard it said regarding what Moses has said, but then he'll say, but I say to you. It's authoritative for Jesus to speak this way, and to those looking on, it's almost as if Jesus might be, I, I don't know, placing himself as a superior to Moses. But what Jesus is really doing is he's placing himself as a superior to the interpreters of Moses. And he's saying, no, 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 it's, it's not just don't murder. We saw that here, right? But it's deeper than that. And so that's what Jesus is leading us into through this kind of method of teaching. But I say to you, and there's six versions of this where Jesus will say, you've heard it said, but here's the deeper way to live that. But I say to you. Uh, and here, isn't it interesting that Jesus begins with relational righteousness. Uh, the place that Jesus begins here in the verses that we just read in teaching about deeper righteousness, it, it's the, the arena of our relationships, which I think would surprise those listening on who, who often, just like us today, have a very limited understanding of righteousness, having more to do with my private life and my holiness and my, my behavior in uh, relationship to God. And though that is a major component, we're going to see that God cares about that. We're going to talk next week and the weeks to come about lust and commitments. Here Jesus emphasizes the importance of how we are navigating our relationships as a main component of righteousness. I think the Pharisees were the ones that probably were most challenged by this idea because they were the perfect law keepers. But it's interesting, you can't legislate love, right? Just by keeping the law, it's amazing how you can keep all the rules of the Bible and still not love your neighbor and still not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so here Jesus in this passage is emphasizing that righteousness is not just what I do as a good person, but it's how I treat people. It's how I navigate relationships. You might be as righteous as a Pharisee in your law keeping, but what do your relationships say about your righteousness? 
What does your marriage say about your righteousness? What does your relationship with your coworkers, your roommate, your close friends, your brother, your sister, your siblings, your, your family members say about your righteousness? Uh, and that's what Jesus is getting at, and that's what he's leading us into. Not just a performance righteousness, not just, you could say, a vertical righteousness, but a vertical righteousness that's dependent on horizontal righteousness, okay? So that's, again, the big idea that we just read about here. Uh, and there are three ways in this passage that Jesus leads us into a deeper relational righteousness for his namesake. Remember, that is one of the characteristics of the good shepherd of Psalm 23, that he is faithful to lead us in paths of righteousness, ultimately for his namesake and for his glory. So let's see here how Jesus, our good shepherd, leads us along that path. The first that we read here is we saw our good shepherd leading us to, number one, recognize, this is where it has to start, as we navigate towards relational righteousness, we must begin by recognizing the danger of unresolved anger. The danger of unresolved anger. That's what Jesus leads us to first. If we're going to be relationally righteous, we must first face the elephant in the room of our relationships, and it's this thing called unresolved anger. Jesus has a unique way of emphasizing the danger of unresolved anger in this passage. Notice what he says. He says, you have heard it said to those of old that you shall not murder. This is the sixth commandment coming out of Deuteronomy and Exodus of the Ten Commandments, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And for the most part, we all agree with you shouldn't do that. And for the most part, hopefully, we all keep that commandment. And there's this understanding that this is a very serious commandment, a commandment you don't violate, a commandment that if you were to violate this commandment of killing someone, murdering someone out of vengeance or hate or anger, the danger is that you will be in danger, look at this, of judgment. So, so we know the danger of murder, uh, not just for in, uh, the eternal consequences that could come, but even in, in regards to our own local government and civil law uh, that, that has great consequences. There's great danger. You can get away with, with certain crimes in our country. Um, it's sad when we see someone, we use the expression, get away with murder. But we understand generally the danger of murder. But what Jesus goes on to say next is quite shocking. He goes on to say, you have heard it said that murder brings you in danger of judgment, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. What? Like most of us are like, I'm not in danger of the judgment of God. Why? I've never killed anybody. And then you read these verses from Jesus, and we all, all of a sudden, stand guilty before God. How many of you have ever been angry with a close uh, relationship, have been angry in that close relationship? How many of you have ever actually called someone a fool? That's the word there, right? You fool. What about raka? You ever done that? 
No, probably not. All right. The word raka there, uh, it's interesting, these two, these two phrases, the word raka was is an Aramaic word that was literally in that culture a four-letter curse word. All right. Uh, it was, it's a bad four-letter word. It was this expletive. It was this insult. Uh, it was to insult someone's intelligence, to say raka. Uh, some literal translations come out to be empty-headed. Okay. Or, or in our culture, out of anger, you might say you... You, uh, you DA, or you say you're stupid, or you're an idiot. Um, the next example here is calling someone a fool. To call someone a fool, the Greek word there for fool is mora, which is where we get the word moron from, uh, ironically enough. And, and to call someone a fool, the idea here is you've moved beyond just insulting their intelligence, but th- this word fool, it's used actually all throughout the Bible. It's someone who's not just unintelligent, but they're also immoral. Think of Proverbs, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. It's someone who the Bible identifies as rebelling against God in foolishness. And Jesus is describing the kind of anger that you call someone this. And so you move from being angry in your heart to uh, insulting them to now attacking their very character. That's the idea here. You fool, you're attacking their character. And Jesus says, as and if you do this, you are in the same danger as a murderer. That's provocative, isn't it? Uh, in fact, uh, it's, it's R.T. France, who's one of the, the best scholars on the Gospel of Matthew, who I've been reading a lot, who had this to say. He said, Jesus' pronouncement here is thus that ordinary insults may be a stray attitude of intent. The totally unexpected conclusion in hellfire comes as a shocking jolt to the complacency of the hearer who might well have chuckled over the incongruous image of a person being tried for anger. That's, it's like, this is hilarious almost. And for, conventio- for a conventional insult, only to be pulled up short by the saying's conclusion. I mean, that's kind of the thought, like the thought of that. This is such a provocative, extreme statement here. What is Jesus getting at here? Um, Jesus, first, is trying to emphasize this reality that sin is sin, and judgment is not just for the certain sins that we do, but when the, when the final judgment happens, and when it comes, which it will, after the return of Christ, before a new heavens and the new earth, we know that every sin will be accounted for. And either Jesus is judged for your sins on the cross, and you are forgiven and acquitted of the crimes of your sins because they've been placed on a Savior, Jesus, or you will bear the judgment and the condemnation for your sins. We know that theologically, what Jesus is reminding us of is that it's not just the big sins, right? We have the big sins that are the ones that you really got to watch out for. And we tend to do that even in the church today where we create these categories of, you know, we kind of know what sin is, but there's like, there's like really sins, like, don't kill anyone. Like if, and I actually grew up thinking that, even grow, growing up in the church, I was like, as long as I don't kill someone, I imagine God will be like, all right, get in here. All right, you, didn't, you did good. You, didn't, you got through life without killing anyone. And we even say things like that, like, man, you know, we think that way. Like, at least I didn't kill them, all right? I, I put their face on a pillow and I punched it, but I didn't actually kill. Like, we, we think that way even. And we have these other categories of sins, of, of, of what Scripture uses this imagery of almost crimes, things like anger and bitterness that we, we kind of push to the side. These are the big sins. These are the sins not to worry about. We even create whole people groups that we have 
cast away from the love of God because they, have, they struggle with and they live and they identify with big sins. All along, we're not looking at the plank in our own eye. And so that's what Jesus is getting us to see. That there is a weight, not just to the, quote, big sins, but, but listen, the root sins. Anger. That's what he's getting at here. Uh, now, the word anger, I want to emphasize uh, something important here. Uh, there's two Greek words in Scripture for anger, okay? Um, the first word is the Greek word thumos, and that's the kind of anger that most of us wrestle with on any given day when someone cuts us off in traffic or someone, um, you know, someone, um, someone cuts in line at the grocery store or, or whatever it is, whatever causes your flare-up. That's the kind of anger that we're talking about here. It's a reactive emotional anger. The image is that of a fire that, bl- that quickly blazes up and then quickly dies down. And, and I want to say that this is not the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here. Um, in fact, in Scripture, that's a healthy thing. It's a healthy thing to feel, it's an emotion, to feel the emotion and the response of anger. Now, we'll talk in a minute about the importance of what you do with that. The Scriptures will say to be angry, but do not sin. That's an important part of this. Uh, but there's another Greek word that's actually used here by Jesus, and it's the Greek word orgezo, and it means not just a reactive emotional anger, it's not about getting angry, but notice what Jesus said here, whoever is angry with his brother. The idea is staying angry. The idea is being angry. And the image is that of a lingering anger. It's replaying the offense over and over and over again to where you are now nursing a grudge and harboring bitterness. It's this sort of slow burn, like a slow cooker, where you kind of clam up with whatever it is has frustrated you. And the reason why this is a dangerous place to be is because this is the root of murder. It's interesting. We see this in the story of Cain and Abel. You know that classic story, the first murder in the history of humanity? Uh, You see the drastic effects. The first real effects of sin in this world is relational. Isn't that interesting? And the first real case study that we have against uh, the fall in this world is a brother, Cain, who murders his own brother, Abel, because of jealousy and anger. Look at Genesis 4. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock of their fat to the Lord as an offering, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Uh, Abel was offering from a place of true worship, the first fruits. And then we see that God did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry. This is an important emphasis, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, notice this, sin lies at the door. Now, what sin was lying at the door of Cain? Knocking on the door. It was murder. It was the action of anger. It says, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And that's always true of any temptation to sin. Sin always comes that way, knocking on the door with a desire to rule over us. Now, the good news of the gospel is we have the power of the Spirit to rule over it. But in Cain's case, that didn't happen. It says, now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and what did he do? And he killed him. Think of it this way. 
as we see in the story of Cain and Abel, as we see emphasized here by Jesus, murder, all murder, comes from a place in the heart that we've all been. Isn't that interesting? I don't know about you, but I watch, Brittany and I are really into a lot of these like crime stories, and I, I don't know if it's something weird about us, but uh, we, we like to follow those investigations, and, and there's such a tendency in these murder stories to judge those people that commit these atrocious murders, which in a sense, like there's some righteous judgment there, but, but th- there's this sense in which Jesus is saying none of us are off the hook with murder. They might have performed the action, but the root of that action was, it a, was from a place in the heart that each of us have been. It's this place of bitterness and anger, nurturing, nurturing a grudge. And, and what happens with that clammed up anger? It explodes. Out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. That's the first place that often that anger acts. It comes out in our speech. We say things like raka and you fool. We hurl hurl insults and then we attack a person's character. And and notice what Jesus is saying here. So I want you to get this concept. Jesus is saying here that the consequence and the danger of this, I want want you to get the, the image here. And in fact, this is interesting. Notice verse 22. If you're angry, you shall be in danger. And then he says, whoever says to his brother raka shall be in danger. If you say fool, you shall be in, do you get the idea? It's like like a flashing sign. Whenever there's anger, what you should immediately think of is danger, danger, danger. In fact, anger is just the word danger without the D, if you think about it. Whoa, okay. All right, it's it's true. Anger is, is, is a dangerous place to be. When you are harboring anger, good things are not going to follow. There should be a flashing danger sign. Now, Jesus certainly is speaking about the dangers of a life in unrepentant anger, a life that hasn't been affected by the gospel, that hasn't trusted in Christ, and is harboring that grudge to the grave, and is facing and will face judgment for sin. Sin will be judged, and there's a danger in that. But I don't believe Jesus is just speaking about a future danger. There's also present implications in Scripture to the danger of things like hell. We tend to think of hell a lot of the times, or heaven and hell, as these future destinations. And though we do see that idea in eschatology, that there's a final judgment, there is uh, the judgment for the wicked, and there's the reward for the righteous and the new heavens and the new earth, uh, those future destinations are connected to two present realities, They're not just destinations. Heaven and hell are kingdoms that are at work and are at war in this world. Remember when Jesus commissioned the church? He said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be be bound on earth. He's speaking about bringing the gospel in the earth. And he says this, that I'm going to build my church, the church of the kingdom of heaven on earth. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see the war imagery that he uses? And so bring this back to anger. Danger, danger, danger. Every time anger is welling up and harboring up in my heart, there's a war between heaven and hell in my life. The kingdom of heaven is either advancing and moving back the gates of hell or the works of hell and the works of the enemy are being magnified through my anger. In fact, listen to how J- James, now, before you think I'm heretical coming up with these concepts, okay? Look at James 3. 
and it talks about an angry tongue, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. Do you see this? And it is set on fire by hell. Same idea that the younger half-brother of Jesus knows the Sermon on the Mount. He knows what Jesus said about the danger of hellfire, not just eternally, but presently. There's something about how the enemy will use our anger to defile and to destroy. It's actually uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, 15, that urges us, looking carefully, notice this, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. The danger of anger is not just the destruction that it wreaks in your own life, the danger of harboring anger, here's what's interesting about this, it affects everyone around you. When you nurture that grudge, When you hold that unresolved anger, the danger is people around you that haven't even harmed you, that are innocent, they bear the brunt of that. Bitterness, it flows out of every relationship. It's it's this, and it's interesting, bitterness is not just I'm mad at that person. Bitterness is not just the state of of a relationship. Bitterness is the state of a heart. So no matter who you come in contact with, that's going to seep out. It's this anger that we carry, and I want to say this, and I've been in seasons of my life where It even affects your relationship with God. You carry that anger towards someone who's holy and good, the only one who's holy and good and perfect, the defiling work, the danger of anger, okay? Now, now that's heavy, right? And and Jesus wants us to recognize that. This is where it must start. We must have a healthy fear of the destructive power of anger in our lives. Not just quick reactive anger, Someone cuts you off, that too, okay? Be careful what sort of symbols and sign language you speak after that happens. Be careful how you act. That's definitely true. We'll talk about that. But more so, anger that we let sit in our hearts, undealt with. Uh, and, and the authors of the New Testament, seeing that Jesus was saying this, you'll, you'll constantly see them in light of this fact, the danger of anger. In light of this fact, you see verses like Colossians, which encourage us to eliminate anger from our lives. It says, but now you yourselves, Colossians 3.8, are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and filthy language out of your mouth. Did you notice that this is, by the way, the same progression as the Sermon on the Mount? It's a heart state, anger, wrath, malice, but then it's a verbal state, blasphemy and filthy language out of your mouth. So it's the same pattern, all right? And then notice also Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. This kind of bitterness and anger, it's been said, is like drinking poison, expecting someone else to die. And it spreads to those around you. We must recognize the danger of this kind of unresolved Anger, that's what Jesus wants us to think about. Murder is not just an action, but it's an overflow of a root issue in the heart, that we, a place that we've all been. Uh, the second thing with uh, what Jesus gets at is not just the importance of eliminating anger, but also, write this down, we see Jesus then encourage us and lead us to prioritize the practice of pursuing peace. This is kind of the opposite direction, right? You gotta put off one thing, anger, but you've got to put on another thing, which is the pursuit of peace. I found this, that if in my life I just try to put off anger and remain stationary, 
The anger is just hanging out over here and slowly making its way back in because it's still an empty room. It's still an empty room. It's not occupied with anything else. I've got to put off anger and I need to pursue peace just as God in Christ pursued peace with me. And so Jesus, look at the way that he says this. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Notice what he says, notice the priority, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. And here's the word of priority, first, that's priority, first, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now this is an incredible point that Jesus is making and he's using an extreme uh, hypothetical situation to illustrate it, okay? Um, Remember, Jesus is writing from... Galilee. He's or speaking in Galilee by the Sea of Galilee here, uh, and as he begins to use this, obviously we see the concept here, right? The idea is like, just like having a relationship with God, but not caring about and disconnecting from your relationship with people. And Jesus goes, no, no, you can't do that. You can't just come to church and, and worship God with a pure heart while being at odds with the person worshiping next to you. Um, you. You can't divorce your relationship with man from your relationship with God. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And that's the thing that we often tend to, is we tend to create these categories, my relationship with God and my relationship with man, you know, and we were like, man, my haters, those are my haters, this is my God. And you have all sorts of language like this that's just at odds with the teaching of Jesus. Here, Jesus is, is going to such great lengths to teach us about the importance of prioritizing peace with our brother and sister that he describes a scenario, remember, those he's writing to, those in Galilee, of traveling, so... There's only one temple at the time, one altar at the time that Jesus is writing in first century uh, uh, Israel, and it's the temple of Jerusalem. This is an 80-mile trek from the Galilean area that Jesus is at. So he creates a scenario where how important this is, that you make this, the Galilean makes his yearly pilgrimage to Israel with his goat, typically, right? His sacrifice. In that culture, animals were, were, were not just pets, they were currency. And you bring, you, make the, you walk 80 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem, and, and there you are. It's finally your turn. You make your way up the temple. You approach the altar. You, after that 80-mile trek, you have your sacrifice waiting in line, and there's the high priest. And as you're there about to make your sacrifice to worship the Lord, you remember, wait a minute, you're crossways or you're at odds and something, there's an issue between you and your farmer neighbor back home, okay? Maybe you're a farmer and you guys have property and there's a dispute about where the fence should go and I'm making this up as I'm going along here. I'm not familiar with Jewish farming, but, but you get the idea and you go, hold on, and you leave your sacrifice. Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar. If there's a dispute, if there's an issue, leave it there and make the 80-mile trek back to Galilee Make things right. Hey, man, I'm really sorry. I just want to reconcile with you. It's really important. I know, it's, I, I, know I might have sinned against you. I know you have something against me. And I just want to, listen, I, I want to say, here's how, here's how I was hurt in this situation. Uh, would, you, would, you, would you hear my heart on that? And would you forgive me if I sinned against you? Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar to go pursue peace, to prioritize peace with your neighbor. It's kind of a radical idea that Jesus is talking about here. How, but what is he saying? He's talking about how important it is to maintain, uh, to pursue peace with your neighbor. We, we see this um, specifically given to us. It's Psalm 34, 14, which says, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Jesus knew this psalm. He knew what it was pointing to. 
Uh, You also have Romans 12, which is probably the most practical, which says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, what a high standard, and and we've talked about this verse a lot in sort of uh, the twofold um, freedom that this verse gives. Um, The first thing that a verse like Romans 12 gives us is it gives us uh, it doesn't give us, let us make any excuse about not living at peace. It's like as much as depends on you. A lot of times we're waiting on someone else to make peace with me when there's things that I still need to do. And just as God pursued peace with me through Christ, remember we talked about this idea of being a peacemaker, being called a child of God, how when I'm pursuing peace, I'm looking a lot like God. Well, he's saying as much as depends on you. And there's another weight that's lifted. So number, on one hand, I can't sit around and wait for, for that person to come to me. Jesus says, you even need to leave your gift at the altar and travel 80 miles back to make things right. He puts the emphasis on, on me seeking peace, pursuing peace in that relationship. But there's also a weight off, isn't there? As much as depends on you. So there's some things that do depend on you, and there's other things that don't. Now, does forgiveness depend on you? Yeah. Does your own pursuit of peace depend on you? Yes. Does the outcome of the relationship and if that person's going to forgive you and want to be reconciled to you depend on you? No. Depends on God. And there's kind of a weight off here. Uh, you know, there's some relationships I've had where uh, I've said, God, I've kind of wa- I said, Lord, I've pursued peace. And if there's any wicked way in me that's not pursuing peace, please reveal that. And, I, and I'm willing to go to the same lengths that you've gone to. But there's times where I go, but it doesn't all depend on me. And that's true. It takes one to forgive, but it does take two to reconcile. And, and, and that doesn't, but nonetheless, it doesn't cause us to not prioritize it. And that's what Jesus is getting at here, the importance of pursuing peace. Um, not showing up to church and, and wor- having your smiling worship face. And, and here's what's hard for me. Like, what's hard for me is I can't do this. I don't know about you. I don't know if you can do this, but like, um, I can't read my Bible if my, you know, and like really like hear from the Lord and, and have a happy Jesus time if me and my wife are not good, you know? Like there's times where I need to read my Bible because I need to be convicted. But, but man, if this is still though something that can happen where you can just fall into the motions of the Christian thing. And I want you to see 1 John. 1 John says, if, any, if anyone says or someone says, I love God, but has hate in his heart for his brother, He's a liar, for he does not love his brother, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So this is what scripture and Jesus is constantly emphasizing, this union between how I love God and how I love my brother. This incongruency between worshiping God and having hate in my heart. Your spiritual life is not just what you do before God, but it's also how you treat people made in the image of God. And so we must prioritize the practice of pursuing peace. Lastly, we close with this last encouragement. Our good shepherd lastly leads us to emphasize the significance of swift resolution. We must recognize the danger of unresolved anger. When there's anger that's festering in my heart, when I see it, I, there must always be this warning sign. Even when that person cuts me off, there must always be this warning, 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 warning. All right? The danger ahead of what I do with that anger. I must next uh, prioritize the practice of pursuing peace. And lastly, we see Jesus lead us to emphasize uh, 
the significance of swift resolution in our conflicts. He uses another example of a dispute, and this time it's not a dispute between, uh, in a spiritual sense of someone going to the altar and having to go make things right, but it's a legal issue. Uh, He says in verse 25, agree with your adversary, that's a legal opponent, literally, agree with your adversary, notice this, quickly. That word's used there intentionally. While you are on your way with him. The idea is is you're on your way with your legal opponent to the court. So agree with him on the way to court. I love that. Wouldn't it be ideal? It's like you're going to court with someone and you guys figure it out on the way to the trial. It's like, oh, we're good. And Jesus is saying, do that. Agree with him on your way, lest you get to court and your adversary deliver you to the judge, and then the judge hand you over to the officer and be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, I get that there are times where settling out of court is not an option and mediation is not an option. There are times where uh, human courts are necessary to bring about some kind of justice. But Jesus is saying here, if it doesn't have to be, don't let it. Uh, The idea here, though, is not so much about what do you do with your legal matters. That's not the point here. What Jesus is talking about is what you do with your relationships. And he's kind of using this illustration to say, hey, you could leave it up to the courts to determine what happens, and you don't know if you end up in prison, okay? In that culture, it's this idea of debt prison where you're in jail so you pay every last penny. But, But ultimately, he's getting us to think about, man, am I letting something linger that could turn out the way that that I would never hope, a way that I never hoped, instead of resolving it quickly. So he uses this crazy idea of, while you're going to, church with, uh, to court with his adversary, agree with him quickly. The idea is settle out of court, uh, uh, find some kind of resolution, but the emphasis here is on the speed of it. And this is a principle that's constantly revisited all throughout scripture, this importance of not being quick to get angry and harbor the grudge and then slow to resolve, but the, the exact opposite, being quick to forgive and slow to anger. Uh, we see this in a couple places. Ephesians really says it best. Be angry and do not sin. And here's this, this incredible scripture that Paul gives. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That's pretty quick, isn't it? Don't let it delay. Don't let the conflict continue. Don't give it time. Time doesn't heal anger and bitterness just magically, okay? All time does is distract you from your anger and bitterness. Resolve it. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Agree with your adversary quickly. And notice what he goes on to say, nor give place to the devil. It's amazing the kind of footholds that the enemy can get into. He gets into these footholds that then become strongholds when we don't resolve quickly. So then James 1.19 says, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Relational righteousness, it's gotta be first recognizing the danger of what anger can do in defiling and destroying, eternally but also presently. Uh, We've got to prioritize in our relationships pursuing peace, pursuing peace in our spiritual life. You can't disconnect your relationships from your spiritual life. We've got to pursue peace as much as depends on me. A great book on this is the book Peacemaker uh, that, uh, that unpacks this concept in a little bit more detail, but we've got to prioritize the the practice of pursuing peace. And then lastly, we've got to, and this is almost a, a strategy in our relationships, we've got to emphasize this 
exercise, this practice of, of resolving quickly, the significance of that. Um, the idea there is, is making sure that anger doesn't rule over me, but I rule over my own heart. I guard my heart, for from it, from it flow all the issues of life. Now, I want to remind us as we close out here, there's only one way that we could do this. There's only one way that we don't fall victim to unresolved anger in our hearts, and it's through a relationship with the living God, who is a God who himself, Psalm 100 says, the Lord is merciful, 103 verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, he is slow to anger, and he is abounding in mercy. There are these constant descriptions in the Bible about our relationship with the mercy and the grace of God being the experience that so- and the source that softens my heart and leads me to reflect that same self-control and love and grace to the people that God has put around me. You know, this is not a message that says, hey, this week, do your best not to get angry. Um, and that's a good thing. We should. He who rules over his spirit, the, the Bible says in Proverbs, is greater than he who controls even an army or, or fortifies a city. So, so we should operate in the, we're talking about the power of the spirit and, and having control and ruling over anger. But this is not about human effort, okay? This is not just a message about what you need to do. Because you know what that'll lead us? That'll lead us this week to being 3% less angry. Right? We do pretty good, but then it just comes back to zero when we blow it again. You've got to have a greater source in your life than your own effort. You've got to have a greater source in your life than wanting to do better. You've got to, as Jesus says, you have to abide in Christ. You've got to remain in him. You, you've got to, listen, prioritize a relationship with a living God, with the living God. When you do, what you have is you have this overflow in your life of love and grace. Constantly over the spout and the flow of his patience. You come to God with your sin and your offenses. Which, when scripture compares people's offenses toward me and our uh, human, uh, there's human offenses towards each other, which grieve the heart of God. But there's nothing that compare to, can compare to human offenses toward a holy and perfect God. That's why we can never fathom the consequences of our sin. Because it's, it's crimes against a holy God. But what the scriptures teach us, what the gospel of Jesus shows us is that this God who is a judge is also a father. And this father of love, who's a father loving his son throughout all of eternity, he displays love even for his enemies, even those who are his adversaries and who have sinned against them. And when we come to this God, we expect his anger to flow upon us and his wrath to be poured out upon us. What he shows us instead is a cross. We're on a cross. He displayed how slow to anger he is, how slow that he would slowly watch his own son suffer and die for our sins, for your sins, so that you could simply say thank you for his grace. And I, t- I want to tell you that when you stay in that place, when the primary point of your life is starting your day each and every day alone with this heavenly Father, You're able to reflect him to the people around you. 
it, it slowly starts to change your heart. And even when you do blow up and get angry, you, you, you start to learn this thing called repentance and humility and, and you experience God's forgiveness. I'm telling you, knowing the living God and experiencing how slow to anger he is and how forgiving and loving he is will change you. Forgiven people become forgiving people. And he who is forgiven much loves much. And so this is what Jesus is leading us into. Relational righteousness with those that we're in close proximity with, and it comes through a relationship with God. And I would hope and pray that today you would prioritize your own relationship with God. If you are not sure of your standing with God, again, look to the cross that settles that once and for all. Remember, it's our Heavenly Father we're talking about. And so in light of Father's Day, in light of how good He is, let's worship Him.